At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear now the Word of God. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and His right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, we proceed from our consideration this morning of verse 1 now to verse 2. This morning we saw the Lord Jesus Christ commending Himself to us, declaring His glorious attributes, His, his character, His works, his, his fragrance, His delightfulness, and His power to save. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And we said that here he's not merely declaring himself to be the bread of life to nourish us, uh, the water of life to quench our thirst. In other words, he's not just sustaining our lives. He's not just enabling us to survive as it were. But he's making life worth living. A rose, a lily, beauty, delight, joy, cheer. We said this is just the medicine we need in the midst of this Michigan winter as we're we're weighed down with the darkness around us. We need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us as a source of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. This morning we saw His gracious intent. We saw His humility in comparing Himself even to these created things over which He stands infinitely, transcendently, the rose and the lily, he, he humbles himself to compare himself to these things. We saw his utter delightfulness. We saw the variety of his delightfulness, that he's not just a rose, but he's a lily. He, he has all the various graces of the Holy Spirit. He saves us to the uttermost from everything, every enemy, every threat. He comforts us in every situation. His holiness is seen as a rainbow of variety and delightfulness. We saw His excellence. Not just any old rose, the best of the best. The rose of Sharon on that western Western plain on the Mediterranean sea coast. The lush roses that grew there. Not just any lily, but the lily of the valleys where that water from the moisture from the mountains and hills would flow down and collect in the valleys of the lowlands. 
producing beautiful and magnificent lilies. The best of the best. Jesus Christ is the most excellent. All else pales in comparison to Him. We're told that Solomon in all his glory was not like the lilies of the field. Christ is more glorious than both. We saw His uniqueness. The rose, the lily, the way, the truth, and the life. And we saw His availability. That just as one in Solomon's day might freely go into the plains of Sharon or into the lowlands of the valleys and find roses and lilies as far as the eye can see with no restriction, no hindrance, and simply go and pluck them to their own delight, even so Christ is offered to all. Come and believe and receive Jesus Christ. But in offering Christ to lost and dying sinners, we don't want to give the impression that Christ is not offered to believers. Christ is offered to believers. When we say Christ is available, that includes the believer. That includes the backslider in heart who can come to the valleys, who can come to Sharon, and who can freely receive Jesus Christ afresh. Can come and smell the aroma of Christ and take delight in the joy of salvation. Jeremiah 3, 21 and following gives us an encouragement when we find ourselves in a difficult place in the Christian life. We're convicted of our backsliding. It says, A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. For they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. How often does the believer feel this in his soul or her soul? I've neglected the Lord. I've forgotten the Lord my God. But notice, return, you backsliding children. Notice, he hasn't cast away his children. They're still his children. They're rebellious. They're going their own way. They're backsliding. But he says, you're still my children. Return. And I will heal your backslidings. Return and I will heal your backslidings. That's the the call. That's the offer. That's the invitation. Indeed, the command of the Gospel of Jesus Christ even for believers here tonight. Return and I will heal your backslidings. Now as we look at verse 2 of the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, we see that there's a transition between the Lord Jesus Christ declaring something about Himself to the Lord Jesus Christ saying something about us. And this, as Calvin said, really is what the entire Christian faith boils down to. It's the knowledge of God in Christ and the knowledge of ourselves. This morning we considered the knowledge of God in Christ. This evening we focus our attention upon what the Lord says concerning us. He tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. And that's very important because this evening, many of us will be renewing our vows of communicant membership. We will be renewing our profession and promise to live as Christians. To live out the Christian life. Well, what is the Christian life? What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian and to live as a Christian The Lord Jesus reminds us here from the pen of Solomon what it means to be a Christian. What it means to live this Christian life that we're promising to pursue. 
So let's focus upon what he says. He says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love, that is my beloved one, so is my beloved one among the daughters. Well, first we see here the vital essence of what it means to be a Christian. The vital essence. This is, this is what it all boils down to. At the end of the day, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be one who is loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to be the object of the love of Jesus Christ. He refers here to His believing people, to His bride, to His church, and all believing members thereof as My love, My beloved one. To be a Christian is to be the recipient of that love of Jesus Christ. And we see this as a major theme in the ministry of our Lord to declare this very point. To reassure His people that He loves them. Paul says Christ as an example for husbands, loved his bride, the church, and gave up his life for her. He loved her and gave up his life for her. Jesus, in John 15, verse 9, makes a statement that is perhaps the greatest, most powerful statement in all the Bible concerning the love that Jesus Christ has for His people. He says, As the Father loved Me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, at first glance, that you know you may have heard that verse before, and perhaps it, it doesn't jump off the page, but if you stop and think, it jumps off the page. Jesus is saying to his disciples, to his believing saints, he is saying, As the Father loved me. And when we think about that, we're thinking about the Father, God the Father, the Eternal Father from all eternity, Christ the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, a communion of love, of perfect love, and, and the, the, the perfect, adorable, lovable nature of God the Son as the brightness of the Father's glory, as the express image of His person, of just ultimate perfection, the Father setting His love upon His Son. And the Son receiving that infinite love and reciprocating that love to the Father. And the Holy Spirit, as it were, the, the Spirit, the outbreathing of the Father and the Son in this communion of love and joy and perfect blessedness. The Lord Jesus Christ says, as the Father loved Me, so I also have loved you. What it's saying is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have only one kind of love when it comes to this passage. It's telling us that the love that Jesus has for us is one and the same with the love that He receives from His Father. That eternal love. That unquenchable love. That love that never had a beginning and never has an end. He says, from all eternity, I've received love from the Father. And from all eternity, I have loved My people. Because from all eternity, the Father has given them unto Me. And from all eternity, I have received them and vowed to redeem them as a bride unto Myself out of love for My Father. The loving kindness of the Lord, the Bible says, is above the heavens. 
It is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 103. And that's the love of God in Christ for His people. So, so Christ could not love you any more than He does. To say that He could love you any more than He does right now is to say that the Father could love the Son more than He does. In principle. I'm not saying every dynamic is the same. This is the love the persons of the Trinity. There's a uniqueness there. But, in principle, in principle, this is perfect love that casts out fear. This is the love the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for His people. In Galatians 2, verse 20, the Apostle can speak of Christ as the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's personal. It's personal. It's, per- it's not just a doctrine. It's not just, oh, the doctrine of the atonement. It's personal. It's for every Christian to say, Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me. And He loves me the same way in principle as the Father loves Him from all eternity. His love is upon me. The Gospel, as Luther said, ultimately amounts to personal pronouns and hinges on our ability to apply these blessings to ourselves. Now with that said, think about what it means for Christ to love you. Think about what God's love for sinners in Christ actually is. Because we're told, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But look at Esau's outward life. Now I know later on, Malachi the prophet, when he makes this statement, he talks about how God judged the Edomites. Okay, fair enough. But look at Esau's life. Look at what happened when Jacob was at Peniel anticipating this meeting with Esau in the book of Genesis. And Esau is surrounded by an army of hundreds of fighting men. Esau has great wealth and prosperity. He's got his own land. He's got everything outwardly that anyone could desire. He's content from a worldly perspective. When Jacob offers him a gift, he doesn't even necessarily need to receive it. And look at Jacob wrestling with the angel. And eventually, how does he eventually come to the point where he's truly wrestling in prayer? and not wrestling against God. It's when the angel touches his thigh, weakens him, causes him to limp, causes him to be vulnerable and weak, and he falls down and clings to the angel of Jehovah and says, I will not let you go until or unless you bless me. Jacob I loved. When God loves someone in the person of Jesus Christ, It doesn't always result in outward prosperity and all of these things that Esau enjoyed. In Jacob's case, the love of God crippled him and humbled him, but enabled him by faith to persevere and enter into eternal life. And in the Scriptures, it is this love of God in Christ for the believer that enables us to worship God. We sang this morning, Psalm 63, verse 3, Lord, Your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, my lips shall praise You. If Christ did not love me, I would not be here. If He didn't love you, dear believer, you'd have no reason to be in this place praising God, worshiping God, hearing a sermon, partaking of the Lord's Supper. 2 Corinthians 5 says that the Apostle Paul viewed his entire Christian life of service 
as a believer, as an apostle. He viewed it all as contingent upon the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ, he says, that constrains us. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we preach the Gospel, we endure reproach because we know the love that Christ has had for us because He died for all. He died for all of His people. Therefore, all died and must no longer live for themselves, but for Him who gave His life for them. It's the whole vital essence of the Christian life that He loved me and gave Himself for me. And you see this in chapter 2, verse 16 of the Song of Solomon. My beloved is mine, and I am His. He feeds His flock among the lilies. Christ loves His people. He dwells among His people. It's mixing the metaphors of the the shepherd with his flock and the lilies, but, but Solomon is just heaping metaphor upon metaphor and saying Christ dwells in the midst of His people. Whether they be sheep, whether they be lilies, there He is in the midst of His people. My love. Secondly, we see a striking resemblance between Christ, who styles Himself the lily of the valleys, and the Shulamite, the bride, the believer whom He describes as like a lily among thorns. So Christ, you see here, is the, the prototype, the, the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher and pioneer of our faith. He is the lily, and we in Him are like Him. We are like a lily. He is perfect righteousness, and He bestows that righteousness upon us. He is perfectly holy. He sanctifies us in conformity to His holiness. The entire Christian life is one ongoing conformity, transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the Scriptures. That we're called to come after Christ. Take up our cross and follow Him. That we're to purify ourselves as He is pure. 1 John 3. That we're to walk in His steps, as Peter says. Even the book of Revelation describes us as sheep who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Our shepherd is a lamb. We're the sheep of his pasture, but we follow the lamb. He came into human experience. He took on a human nature. He is the lamb of God who leads the flock of God who follow him wherever he goes. And my friends, there's, there's such a beautiful correlation between Christ and his people. His beauty is reflected upon them in the same way that the moon has no light of its own, but its light is the reflection of the sun. Even so, the believer in one sense has no beauty of his own or her own, but all of his or her beauty. And the beauty of the church is nothing but the reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image and brightness of the Father's glory as He reflects upon us. I mentioned that Jesus says that even Solomon was in no way comparable in beauty to the lilies of the field. And my friends, the greater Solomon is the lily of the valleys. And he enables us in our holiness, in our walk with God, in our righteousness, in every aspect of our salvation to be beautiful. 
Psalm 90 verse 17 tells us in this psalm of toil in the wilderness, yet it ends in this way, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Christ is that beautiful lily and He makes us to be like a lily. Romans 8 says this is really the substance of our salvation. This is the whole point. We often quote that verse, verse 28, that says that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, We quote that, and rightly so. But notice in context what it's actually saying that that good thing is, that, that, that all of these circumstances are working toward. It's all working for good, but in what way? What is the goodness that it's working toward? Verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, in similar fashion, reinforces this point. But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, you're going to have a resemblance to Christ. And in this case, you can see the lily represents, as we saw this morning, that He is holy, harmless, undefiled. 1 John 3, as I mentioned, said that that He who is saved by Christ, the One who is a true child of God, is purifying Himself even as Christ is pure. And in contrasting the lily with the thorn bush here, I think we can see one aspect in which the believer is distinct from the world and is conformed to Christ over against that sinfulness and that depravity into which we were all conceived and born. What is it that distinguishes the lily from the thorn? Well, the lily is holy and harmless. If you pick up a lily, it's not going to pierce your finger. But you see with thorns that they're destructive, they're sharp, they're cutting. They're not harmless, they're harmful, they're hurtful. Not too long ago, I was hunting in western Pennsylvania. And in many of the places we were hunting, we had to walk through areas where there was not a well-established path. And there were thorns. And the goal was to make sure you walked through a portion where the thorns were basically below your knees, kind of below your waist, so you can keep your hands up and and not certainly they wouldn't hit you in the face, which is difficult, especially when, when it's getting dark or you're walking through these, uh, the woods in, in the early morning when there's no light because the thorns are sharp. The thorns are painful. And I, I, I got pierced by some thorns a couple times. It's painful. It's not the end of the world, but it's painful. And, and that really forces us to examine ourselves in terms of the way we interact with others. A true Christian is not going to be a porcupine. A true Christian is not going to be constantly lashing out at people with sharp, cutting, hurtful, piercing words of anger and bitterness. And certainly a true Christian, when they find themselves falling into that sin, is going to repent and ask forgiveness. 
when Jesus Christ welcomes us to the table of the Lord, He does so with the proviso that if we've done anything like that to wrong our neighbor or our brother, Matthew 5, we need to go to that person that we've harmed, that we've jabbed with the thorn as it were, and we need to repent and ask forgiveness and reconcile. Otherwise, we come to the table for a measure of judgment rather than blessing. And if our lives are characterized by sharp, cutting, piercing words and actions toward other people, and we're not wholly harmless and undefiled, we don't have a spirit of love, we're not merciful, as James says, easily entreated, and humbled even when, again, Christian could lose their temper, but humbled to ask forgiveness when we're convicted of these things. If that's not us, we should not be coming to the table. We should not be coming to the table if we're coming to the table as one who is jabbing and piercing and harming and hurting the people around us. It's a frightening thought. Is that you? And, and again, if there's someone you need to ask forgiveness that you can reasonably do that before you come to the table, do it. If they're here, ask the forgiveness. Confess the sin lest you partake of judgment. If the person's not here, make it a point as you're renewing your vows, also make a vow to talk to the person as soon as you get a chance, maybe tonight or tomorrow. But the, the lily versus the thorn bush, there's a striking resemblance between Christ who is filled with love and grace and His people who love their brothers, their neighbors, and even their enemies. Thirdly, there's a visible contrast. A visible contrast. We've already alluded to this between the lily and the thorns. He says that my people are a lily among thorns. The lily and the thorns, as we've said, are antithetical. These two things are complete opposites. And we must not lose that. And we must not lose the fact that ordinarily it's just a sharp and obvious visible contrast between the character of believers and the character of unbelievers. Ordinarily, if you were to observe somebody's life, it should become apparent, again, not saying we're judging people's hearts, but the biblical picture is such that there's fruit that there's outward evidence one way or the other. Ordinarily, you, you can get a good sense of where somebody's at spiritually by the life that they live, the words they speak, the, the actions that they do, and so on and so forth. There's a visible contrast between believers and unbelievers, between the people of God and the world at large. And the Lord Jesus Christ in His intercession and prayer for His people in John 17 Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So you can see, even the world is able to see something different. The world sees the church embracing and believing, and to an extent, obeying the word of God. The world at large hates that and directs its opposition against that. And Jesus says, my people are not of the world. They're not like the world. They're not to be equated with the world or conformed to the world. They're separate from the world just as I am separate from the world. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus came in to a world of vicious and violent depravity and unbelief and perversion. He came into a world of wicked opposition against Himself. The lily of the valleys was a lily among thorns. Literally, they platted Him with a crown of thorns upon His brow. That's how they treated the lily of the valleys. And believers are no different. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. They are a lily among thorns. Among the vicious opposition of the world at large. There is a visible contrast. If you were to look at a lily in the midst of thorns, you could pick out the lily. You know, you have these, these online tests to make sure you're a human. You know, pick out the school bus or the, the crosswalk. You know, I'm not too worried about AI taking over the world until AI is able to distinguish a motorcycle from a school bus. But in any event, you, you've got these tests and distinguish one from the other. You could tell the difference between a lily and a thorn bush every single time. No question about it. It's a visible contrast. And throughout the New Testament, this is assumed. This is shown forth, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. In other words, wasting your life in worldliness. They speak evil of you, he says. They speak evil of you. Why? Because you're not participating in these things. You're not running into sin like you once did. Even the Lord's Supper is intended to strike a visible contrast between the church and the world. Larger Catechism 162 says, what is a sacrament? The answer is this, a sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ in His church. Then it goes on, gives one of the aspects here, to distinguish them from those that are without That's the purpose of a sacrament. And and it's a little different with baptism and the Lord's Supper, but with respect to the Lord's Supper, there is a visible contrast. We come forward to partake at the table of the Lord. It is a table in the midst of our enemies. I know obviously for certain administrative reasons, you 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 may be a believing Christian who's here who hasn't been interviewed for the table and you're not going to partake. Okay, it's not a perfect system administratively. But... In principle, there's a distinction here between those who are professing Christ, taking His commandments, and taking upon themselves the responsibilities of the Christian life, and professing and proclaiming His death until He comes, and, and taking the responsibilities of a local church member responsible to elders in the church, and coming and participating in the Lord's Supper. There's a visible contrast here. And throughout the New Testament, this is the case. 1 Corinthians 11.32 in respect of the Lord's Supper says this, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So even coming to the Lord's table, if we come and maybe we haven't repented of that sort of thorn bush attitude and those thorny words that we spoke against other people. We come to the Lord's table. We haven't confessed those things. 
We're coming unworthily. But even then, the Lord chastens us. Hopefully, it's just a sickness. He doesn't strike us dead. I mean, these are not things to take for granted here. Things to to take lightly. But uh, when we're judged, when we're chastened by the Lord, and every believer experiences these things, He does it so that we would not be condemned with the world. So even in chastening us at the Lord's table, it's so that we might take His Word more seriously so that at the end of the day we repent and we, we are not condemned with the world. It's gracious even in that disciplinary sense. But it's, it, it's, it's visible. It's visible. The New Testament describes the Christian as one who has life rather than being dead in trespasses and sins. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of light and darkness. It's a matter of God versus the devil. Christ and Belial. Righteousness, unrighteousness. All of these things are visible, tangible, discernible things. Even as the lily is easily discernible from the thorns. Not to say there aren't wheat and tares and difficult, thorny questions, if you will, but ordinarily, it's clear. You'll know them by their fruit. Well, fourthly, we find a word of comfort. A word of comfort. Because notice what the Lord Jesus Christ says concerning His church and concerning each believer. Like a lily among thorns, so is My love among the daughters. Who is it, dear believer, that calls you a lily among thorns? Who is it that speaks of you in a way that reflects the infinite beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the lily of the valleys. Who is it? It's Christ. Jesus Christ, the royal bridegroom, is the one who is calling you a lily. Because see, at times, we examine ourselves and we find many things to condemn in our lives. We find that we've said thorny things to other people. We've had a thorny attitude. And we find many reasons where we might say, well, how could I possibly come to this table in a worthy manner and commune in the holy presence of Jesus Christ, the lily of the valleys, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. I'm filled with sin. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And we find ourselves perhaps struggling in that conviction of sin that the Spirit brings, we find ourselves struggling in the slough of despond with Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. And rather than being convicted of sin and bringing it to the Lord Jesus, confessing our sins and having that declaration of forgiveness and pardon and righteousness in our consciences to lead us to greater assurance, to lead us to the table of the Lord, rather than growing in assurance through conviction of sin and and confession and pardon like Isaiah whose lips were touched. Instead, we just are overwhelmed with self-condemnation. And we, we don't go to Christ. And the accuser of the brethren, the devil comes in and we're weighed down. And there are times when we need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us and we need to hear that He sees a difference. That He sees a difference. We may not always see that difference. We may be bogged down in the slough of despond, but we need to hear His voice. Now, what do I mean by that? Am I saying some kind of special mystical revelation? No, I'm saying we need to get back into the Word of God. We need to get back in John's Gospel and examine ourselves in light of the voice and Word of Christ concerning what a believer is. 
Not someone who says, I've never sinned. If you say that, you're making God a liar. But one who, who sins, but has an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous to cleanse us from all sin. A person who walks in the light and is willing to be exposed and convicted and condemned. A person who loves the brethren, who believes on Christ, who strives to obey God's commandments, though imperfectly in this life, and who sorrows over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to hear the biblical marks of grace because, my friends, Christ by His Spirit will enable us to hear His voice. He'll he'll enable us to discern ourselves in those marks of grace. And we'll hear Him saying, yes, you may be discouraged, dear believer, but I say you're a lily and not a thorn bush. I see a difference. Again, is is it mysticism? No. But is there a mystical experiential element? Absolutely. Psalm 35 and verse 3. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Romans 8.15 and following, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does the Holy Spirit come alongside the means of grace? Does He come alongside the Word and through the Word and through the sacraments and through the ordinances of worship and through spiritual fellowship among the brethren and encouraging words from the brethren? Does He increase our assurance? Does He say to our soul, I see a difference. You're a lily in the midst of thorns. Does He bring those words of comfort? Absolutely He does. No doubt about it, He does. It's not going to necessarily be when we're just sitting on a log in the forest. We need our Bible open. We need to be in church. We need the ordinances. We need family worship. But yes, He does. And He speaks that word of comfort to our souls. And we see this in Psalm 45 where we're told that in verse 11, "...so the King will greatly desire your beauty." Christ desires the beauty. He declares the beauty. He recognizes the beauty of His bride, the church, and of each believer. You are a lily, He says. And you can see in chapter 1, verse 8, He says, again, He emphasizes the way in which we come to this greater and greater manifestation of, of His assuring voice. If then you do not know, O fairest of women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. So he says, follow in the footsteps of the flock. Stay in the means of grace. Look to the promises. Look to the cross. Look to those passages like in 1 John about how we know we've passed from death to life. Bring them before the Lord, before His throne of grace. And examine yourself in that way. Not morbid introspection. Not suspicion. But in a believing, Christ-centered way. Bring these things before the Lord. And when you do, my friends, it will be glorious to be reassured. Even at the Lord's table, we can find great increase of assurance. Luke chapter 22 Verses 19 and 20. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, listen to what He says. Listen to how Jesus characterizes what it means to come to His table. 
what we should be thinking about when we see the bread, when we see the cup, when we partake of the elements. What should be going through our minds? We've examined ourselves. We've confessed our sins. We're coming to the table with all of this baggage to unload at the foot of the cross and to receive this grace. He says, it says, He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. It is given for you. Verse 20, Likewise, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood which is shed for you. Personal pronouns. Jesus is here. He's at this table. He's in this building. He's present. He's in His Word. He's in His ordinances. He's singing the Psalms with us in the midst of His brethren. And He is here to comfort you in your situation. You may feel as though you are a lily among thorns. You find yourself in the midst of a world of opposition. Increasingly so. Whether it be just in society at large, in your neighborhood, in your school, or your university, in your workplace, in your family, you find yourself as just in the midst of thorns and thistles. And you're being pierced with the opposition of this present evil age. Perhaps even for some, I hope it's not the case in our church, but for some in their own local church, they feel as a lily among thorns. And, and what a horrifying thing it is to be in that situation and to lack the comforting voice of Christ who says, yes, but I see you as that lily among thorns. Listen to what Jesus says to the church in Pergamos. He says in Revelation 2.13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to My name and did not deny My faith even in the days in which Antipas was My faithful martyr. He says, I have a few things against you. We've got things to work through. You need to repent here, here, and here. Okay. He, he, he speaks the truth in love, but He knows. He says, I know your works. I will not be unjust to forget your labor of love. Hebrews 6.10 I know your works. I know your faith. I know that you didn't budge when you were pressured to deny me. You, you hung by and you confessed the faith. And you took it on the chin. I've seen it. I know it. Perhaps you've forgotten it and you're, you're weighed down by your most recent battle with sin. But I see you, lily among thorns, and I love you. And you are my beloved one. And I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you in the midst of that vulnerable situation. Well, that word of comfort also reminds us of the vicious conflict of the Christian life. When we renew our covenant vows before the Lord, understand that as we move forward in the Christian life, it is a conflict, a vicious conflict that we are entering into. We are lilies among thorns in this present evil age. Psalm 23, we have a table. It is in the midst of our enemies. In the midst of a world of opposition to Christ. This fallen world is a world of thorns and thistles. Genesis 3 says that's one of the marks of the fall. And that's really one of the symbols of the fall throughout all the Bible. 
that this fallen world is represented by thorns and thistles. Thorns that multiply. A thorn bush takes up nutrients from the soil, but it doesn't produce fruit. It's utterly useless and only causes harm. And that's most people in the world today. Enemies of God living for themselves. That's who the Canaanites were when Israel went in to conquer the land. Unbelieving, self-centered, humanistic, idolatrous people. And you see this imagery, Numbers 33 and verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. My friends, we like Israel have been unfaithful. We haven't been the salt, the light, the leaven, the witness, the influence. We've been given so much. We haven't been faithful stewards of these spiritual and physical blessings in our country. And because of our unfaithfulness, God has judged us. He's raised up thorns that have multiplied through the land. This nation is now dominated by human fallenness and sinfulness and corruption. It's a thorny place. It's a violent place. It's a place that is pierced through with many pains and anguish in the soul and in the body. Uh, We could give examples. But my friends, as believers, we're called to be the first fruits of a new creation. We were that thorn bush. We've been transformed. We are lilies in the image of Jesus Christ, the lily of the valley. And we are in the midst of these thorny, fallen, worldly idolaters. God has preserved us. He has transformed us. And we represent what God is doing to make all things new. And yet we're opposed by the world. We're opposed by the flesh. In Mark 4.19, the Lord Jesus Christ compares our sinful lusts and the distractions of life that flow from those lusts to thorns. He says the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. God has planted a seed. He's given it growth. He's caused you to grow as a Christian, but you're surrounded by things in the world that if you're not careful, your sinful flesh will gravitate toward those distractions. Toward your money. Toward your education. Toward your vocation. Toward certain relationships in your life. Toward keeping the things you have or getting the things you don't have or protecting against the future of all these apocalyptic things that are on the horizon, whatever it is, you can become obsessed and distracted by the cares and anxieties of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Whatever is not seeking first the kingdom of God, it's those other things, and they will choke your spiritual life. If not, choke the life out of you if you're an unbeliever, even as a believer. They're going to hinder your spiritual growth. You're opposed by the cares of this life and of your sinful flesh. And you're opposed by Satan's devices. Paul, famously, was plagued with a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that thorn in the flesh, whatever it may have been, we don't know, but in connection with it, 
there was sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him. 2 Corinthians 12.7 So whether Satan or his, you know, one of the demons was the thorn in the flesh or whether he was just taking advantage of that thorn in the flesh, that circumstance of weakness in Paul's life, we don't know. But Satan is, is going to be present in one way or another. The forces of darkness are going to take advantage of the affliction and the difficult circumstances in your life, and they will seek to influence you toward bitterness, toward lust, toward unbelief, toward apathy, toward worldliness, toward pride, whatever it is. And my friends, these thorny opponents that we face in the world, the flesh, and the devil need not bother us. They need not frighten us. They need not intimidate us. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil have been defeated by the same cross that we are memorializing and experiencing and celebrating at this table tonight. Christ, the lily of the valleys, has already received the crown of thorns and He has overcome. He has given up His life as a ransom for many. He has crushed the serpent's head underfoot. He has planted His church in the world against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we have the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead to enable us to put to death the deeds of our flesh. So, none of the thorny opposition that seems to threaten this little lily has any hope of success. And we need to remember that. We ought not to be fearful. We ought not to be weighed down with anxiety. There is no opposition to Christ's work in your life that is not already defeated as represented by this table. Now there's so much more that I believe this text is pointing us to. But we're going to set it aside here. And God willing, next Lord's Day, we're going to consider three additional points as we look at the lily among thorns. But I just want us to take this in before we proceed to our covenant renewal. Because when we renew these vows before the Lord, we need to understand we are not promising something that is impossible. When it, when it says, I endeavor to forsake all sin... You are not promising perfection. What you are promising is what the Lord has promised to do in your life. You're feeding on His faithfulness. Every single thing in your vows, in your covenant of communicant membership, in your covenant of baptism with respect to raising your children, all of those things are things that God has promised to do in your life through the grace of Jesus Christ. There's not one of them that is unattainable. It is true that as Christians we can backslide and ignore the means of victory and ignore the means of grace and fall short uh, woefully negligent in some of these areas. And, And we need to confess that. So I'm not saying sit back and rest on your lilies. But I am saying, and we'll get to that next week, we've got a lot to say about these thorns and and how sometimes the lazy man just lets the thorns run wild. But here's the point. Christ has promised to give you the grace to believe and do every single thing here. So, even though this is a profession of faith and purpose, understand that the profession of purpose is fully rooted in the profession of faith. If you believe the Gospel concerning sanctification, 
then you not only may, but must make these promises to confirm you believe God will do this work in your life and enable you to follow through on what He has promised to do. So cling to those promises. Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Titus, not only died to take away the guilt of sin. Listen to this beautiful description of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and then, then we'll, we'll transition. We'll move on here. But Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. A lily among thorns. How are you going to live godly in this present age of thorny unbelief and wickedness? Well, he says the Gospel teaches us that it's possible. That it's actually promised to us. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. He died. He rose again. He did it for us. Notice where this is all leading for Paul here. That He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people zealous for good works. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm stained with scarlet and crimson. No, He purifies you as a white lily. He purifies you as white as wool, as white as snow. He purifies for Himself His own special people, set apart from the world, the lily among thorns, zealous for good works. You say, I don't have the zeal to follow through and grow in these areas in, in our covenant vows. But the Gospel says otherwise. The Gospel teaches us that's not the case. That He's redeemed you by the cross and given you victory, and He supplies you with all the zeal you need to pursue the good works that He has foreordained for you to perform. Well, these are many reasons for us to give thanks and to find encouragement and to, to grow in our assurance of eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise Your name. We thank You for Your indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe. Help our unbelief. Enlarge our hearts that we may run in the way of Your commandments. Help us to be taught by the Gospel concerning the sanctification that Christ has purchased for us through His death and resurrection. And help us, as Titus chapter 1 also reminds us, to view You as the, the faithful and true God who has given us this word of eternal life by a promise and that You are the One for whom it is impossible. It is impossible for You to lie. Give us faith. Give us trust in Your immutable faithfulness. Feed us with Your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.